the blessing that's ours this morning is certainly a, a grand one, isn't it? To be able to assemble with our health the way that it is, to permit us the, the nice feature of gathering on the Lord's Day, even as we are today. As we've often noted, the first day of the week is the most important day in terms of direct commandment and service to God, and it's a day that we look forward to so vastly. As I stand before you today, certainly thankful all of us can be here in this way and hopeful that our worship to God will please Him, being in truth and, of course, in spirit. As you know, from time to time, we invest our, one of our lessons in questions and answers. Questions which you have taken the liberty of asking, that you have placed in that box there in the foyer, and as always, uh, I've said, said it more than once, but last year we were preempted a number of times in these because of the periods of time we did not meet on Sunday evening. But on occasion, sometimes these questions that are asked seem a bit more appropriate in terms of sharing on Sunday morning, and that's the reason that I've come to this particular lesson today. This is the fourth installment of this year already. And of course, we're not quite done with March yet, but we're trying to catch up a little bit on some of those questions that, that you have asked previously. As always, it would be entirely right for me to say that these are not my questions. You have the prerogative of asking them, and you're the one that selects the particular topics. And for that reason, I think it's very vital to use the information you've shared and try to provide a biblical response to those questions you've asked. Now the question this morning, there will be four of them, and as we look at them, they all connect to the same basic subject. And the first question will in fact be this one. Allow me to read it. What is the proper perspective on the assemblies of the church? In particular, what should be done if Christians who can attend the various assemblies choose not to do so. Now, the person who asked this question, again, I do not know who it was. I never, by the large, know who asks the questions, but in many ways you can tell that all of these particular questions today are going to call upon us to reflect a little bit on the nature of the assemblies. What could be said about the fact when Christians come together, even as we are at the present moment? You'll notice on that slide, I thought perhaps to give some background to the person's question, we might well begin it this way. We understand full well that the church is not comprised of people in the world. The Bible, in fact, does a great job of distinguishing the fact that it's the Christians, it's those who are saved by faith, who are the ones who, of course, added to the church. In Acts 2.47, aren't we told, the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. And so it is that those who have submitted their lives to the characteristic of the nature of God's commandment, being baptized for the remission of their sins, they are the ones that the Lord added to His church. Therefore, they occupy a different status, a different place, for reasons that we'll see shortly. You'll notice then that as a member of the church, there are certain obligations that the Lord places upon them. And we understand some of them, of course, partaking of the Lord's Supper, the other acts and avenues of the worship, but even the act of assembly itself. Isn't it true that God expects those individuals that can, those that are Christians especially, you know, to assemble? That's what He says in the New Testament. 
I might ask that you would go ahead and look at a couple of verses near the bottom of that slide. Probably one that comes to mind so quickly is that fact of Hebrews 10.25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It is at this point that we each might remember that that was written to Hebrew Christians. Namely, those who had obeyed the gospel, but due to the fact of the circumstances in which they live, the persecution upon them was great if they made claim to Christianity. Now, as long as they made claim to the law of Moses, they weren't persecuted. So there was a strong tendency on their part, let's leave Jesus behind. Let's make attachment to the law of Moses because life's easier this way. And the Hebrew writer points out to them, look, you cannot do that. If you leave Christ, you've left everything in the nature of your own redemption and salvation. You couldn't be redeemed under the law of Moses. And that law was nailed to the cross. You can't go back to it even if you want to. That's not even an option. But in many ways, I would suggest that an even stronger verse that at least challenges us in regard to the assembly is from the lips of the Lord Himself in Matthew 6.33. Jesus there said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now the fact is, if I can assemble but choose not to, I've directly violated that verse. I have not put the kingdom first. I've put something else first, be it my pleasure, TV program, doesn't matter what else it is. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And that's a constant matter of challenge to you and to me alike to ensure that we are kingdom people who honor and adore the kingdom highest above all. The person in, in the question that was asked made observation that some Christians, those who again have been baptized for the remission of their sins, those who have made claim to being in allegiance with the Master, that they choose not to assemble, though they could. First thing I would say is surely we must be aware that maybe the particulars of a person's situation might well be different. There might well be illnesses or sicknesses. But we can surely say this, if you or I choose not to come to the assemblies when we could do so, we have become guilty of sin. We know that because of Hebrews 10.26. The very next verse, after the one we noted earlier that said, not forsaking the assembly, he says, those who do so are willfully guilty of trampling underfoot the Son of God. What a strong wording, don't you agree? In essence, running roughshod over Jesus Himself if we choose not to put the kingdom first and choose not to assemble when we could do so. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, I would also offer this thought. We each know well that this world is not our home. And we know very well that the world is not friendly to Christianity. The world is never going to encourage you or me to be better Christians. It's never going to encourage us to grow and mature in the faith. It is never going to be any support of any characteristic means of drawing closer to God. It just won't. Where then are we going to find this support? I know there's private devotion, private reading of the Word of God, private prayer, and that's needful, that's important. But isn't it true that there is a vitality 
connected to the assembly. And that's why God, no doubt, in His infinite wisdom, concocted it this way. The assemblies are not man's idea. God commanded it. And in so doing, isn't it interesting that when it comes to the first day of the week and the liberty given to elders to select additional times of meeting, those are for the spiritual well-being of all who can come. So, in light of the assemblies, then, how vital is it to appreciate that we need them to help us be guarded against the wiles of the devil, guarded against the features and the characteristics of the world? So the person asks, what might be done in this situation? A Christian who chooses on a regular basis not to attend. May I at least offer these words of wisdom, again, based on the Word of God? First of all, the elders are greatly concerned with the spiritual well-being of such a person. In a congregation our size, it's easily observed who's here and who's not. And so a person who makes it a habit, a ritual not to attend... Clearly, that's disturbing to the elders because they're charged with watching for your soul. But it's also very discouraging to the other members of the congregation. And we're supposed to encourage one another, not discourage. For that reason, I've asked you to note at the top, surely the elders would then be in a position to desire a face-to-face -face meeting with an individual in this category. And there are clearly at least two benefits of such a meeting. Number one, it would allow the person to clarify the circumstances prompting their absence. Maybe, at least on occasion, there's some situations that might warrant it. But on the other hand, it would become very clear if there are no such situations. And for that reason, that would then give to the elders a very clear understanding of what the person's attitude is. If their attitude is, well, I'm just not coming, then it's clear the elders now know what will need to be done next. What will need to be the next step in the desire to help this person see their own fault and failure in this matter. Sometimes, I suppose, in life we're guilty of seeing faults in other people that don't always see them in ourselves. This is surely one time when it would be critical for the person to understand his or her failure in this matter. With that said, the bottom of the slide is... Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. Now we remember there was a circumstance where one brother had offended another one. And surely some of the principles of that would be very appropriate even in a case like this one. So you go and talk to the person. The elders are going to do that personally. If that isn't done right, or if, in fact if the results of that are not favorable, then further steps can then be taken. Steps to help the person appreciate that the choice they're making is not just foolish, it's sinful. And he can't go to heaven that way. And that's what we want. We want everybody to go to heaven. And so as you and I close this opening question, I would point out that our elders, based on the Word of God, occupy the role of a pastor. That means they're watching for the sheep of their flock. And as they watch, they do so with great loving prayer and character. For they're going to have to give an account someday of the degree to which they have carefully watched for the nature of that flock. Question number two links to this question, and it reads like this. Continuing this discussion, is it not the case 
that Christians are supposed to submit to the authority of the elders, including matters of assembly, or wearing of masks, or any other particular matter of expedient. Could you address this? Well, you and I notice that the person is very directly asserted that there are some of the assemblies, in fact, you and I noted this in a recent lesson, which God Himself has mandated, such as the one in which we're participating currently. He has also given to elders the opportunity to assert additional meetings, and they too are thus under the authority of what is given by God. And certainly if the elders have seen fit to declare other assemblies, such as Sunday night or Wednesday night or Sunday morning Bible study, that those two become matters of essential obligation. This person is thus asked the question, if the elders have made such submissions like this, isn't it true Christians are supposed to submit to their elders, meaning we should obey what they say? Would you please be turning to Hebrews 13, verse number 17. Perhaps the clearest verse of the New Testament on this subject is the one that we're about to read. Near the end of the Hebrew epistle, the Hebrew writer points out this, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy, and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. Now in this particular passage, you and I remember the last chapter in the Hebrew letter is really a number of presentations. It often jumps quickly from one particular matter of thought in one verse to a different matter in the next one. And yet as the writer comes to verse 17, as we call it, he now says, Obey them. May I ask you to note a bit about the grammar of the verse. First of all, the subject is understood. Obeys the verb. Who is supposed to obey? Notice the text does not specifically listed. But you and I know from common understanding of English, as well as grammar in general, what that means. The subject is understood. And we often do that even in English today. You're having a conversation with one of your children. You say, pick up that sock. You never said who was supposed to pick it up. But the context made it pretty clear. You were in conversation with your son or daughter, and you gave that order to that person. So too here, the Hebrew writer, without listing the subject, you and I know he was writing to these Hebrew Christians, those that were tempted to leave behind their allegiance to the church and to Christ Himself. And to them He said, You obey those that have the rule over you. Now he wasn't talking about civil authorities. You'll notice he goes on to say, Submit yourselves, they watch for your souls. President doesn't watch for my soul or yours. <laughs> we all know that. The governor in Nashville doesn't watch for your soul or mine. He's talking about elders. He's talking about those gentlemen who meet the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and who occupy the office of the elder in the local congregation. They watch for our souls. He says, obey them. That means, very clearly, it's hard to misunderstand it, that in all matters of expediency, hear me now, in all matters of expediency, we are supposed to submit to them. Now, if they ever give an order 
a command that in some way violates the Word of God, obviously we don't obey them then because we ought to obey God rather than men. He Acts 5.29. But as long as what they say, as long as that which they assert is consistent with the Word of God and the authority God has delegated to them, we are commanded to obey them. We're not just suggested to obey them. We're commanded to obey them. And in fact, the verse states it two different ways. It started by saying, obey them, and then it says, submit yourselves. In other words, we voluntarily set our preferences behind to put into practice that which is their order or their statement of command. As we do that, the verse now puts it like this, For they watch for your souls. They aren't making just arbitrary assertions. They aren't just making trivial presentations. With careful prayer and very, very serious reflection, they've tried to select what's in the best interest for the spiritual well-being of the people of this congregation. It then says this, As they that must give account, the elder is by far the most serious institution in office any person on this earth can hold. Because you're going to have to address the very God of heaven and Jesus Christ His Son and give an answer for the manner in which one watched over that local congregation of His flock. Now the verse ends by saying, It is hopeful that they will be able to do this with joy. It should be our goal as members of the congregation to give no trouble to the elders. Because if we give no trouble to them, they have been a dutiful citizen, not only of what the Lord has said, but of the issues that the elders have asserted relative to our own spiritual well-being. If we've caused them trouble in some way, then that would suggest, doesn't it, that at least in regard to those matters at hand, we have chosen to act in a way that has been unprofitable for us. Now, I say all that to say that the person who asked this question, in fact, hit the nail right on the head. We are supposed to submit to them, and hence, if I choose not to attend the services when I could do so, then not only am I doing what God would not have me do, I am directly doing what is not consistent with what the elders have asserted. And so I have a yet another error piled onto my record. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, I've asked you to also consider this. The things that the elders suggest, clearly they try to be bound by those declarations of the Word of God, and that's what binds them to that which they say. There are times when they prescribe in matters of expediency. And therefore, one congregation might do something a little different than another one because the elders of the two congregations have made a slightly different choice. Easy examples, maybe one congregation like us meets at 5.30 on Sunday night. That's fairly unusual. Most everyone else meets at either 5 or 6. Anything wrong with meeting at 5.30? Of course not. Our elders have chosen that to be a suitable time for us. And so we longingly submit to that which they've said. But we all know that there are other times, such as in the midst of this matter now, when the elders have made suggestions, such as the wearing of masks at, at, at proper occasions in our service. 
may I suggest that we should take seriously matters of their suggestion on that, on that particular account. Now, that is being relaxed a bit in, with the time that we've come to, but I would say that our elders back in December made a strong assertion that let's try to honor social distancing, let's try to meet what the Lord says by assembling, but do so in a way that would maintain a better avenue of healthfulness for everybody that comes. We certainly try to do our best at being consistent with that which they said on those occasions. As you and I close that question, what about the third one? The one that, again, follows somewhat along with it. The question reads as follows. Again, if a Christian who could attend the assemblies but chooses not to do so, and thus willfully is not submissive to the elders, what should the elders do next? Well, the person's becoming very direct at this point. What might we say that could be said about the activities of the elders in a case like this? First of all, as we noted a moment ago, you would suppose that a meeting would already have happened, a, a very kind not a defensive meeting at all, but just try to understand what the person is thinking, what kind of attitude the person has, what kind of circumstances have prompted them, perhaps in days past, that has led to a habitual absence in the way that it has. At the very least, I wish to share with you some thoughts. Could I offer to each of us the thought that not all disobedience is exactly the same? And even the Bible teaches this. Look at a few possibilities. I've asked you to consider some disobedience is basically weakness. It is such that the person, perhaps under the loads or particular matters in life, have chosen to act in a way that is foolish, not consistent with the Word of God. But maybe for a time, they were very frequent and faithful attenders, and yet something in life happened. Maybe it was at work, maybe it was in the family, perhaps something else. And under the weakness of the decisions, they have now begun to act in these ways of missing the assemblies. Another possibility is ignorance. And this might be especially true of a younger Christian. Maybe someone who recently obeyed the gospel or maybe grew up in a situation where they weren't schooled in the careful matters of the faith. Maybe they just don't understand that they are expected to be at all the services. Maybe that would be one of those things the elders could be sure to clear up with them when they have that meeting. But isn't it also true that some disobedience is just plain rebellion? In other words, I know I'm supposed to be there, but I'm not coming. That's just what they're going to say. If not directly, at least that's going to be the basic matter the elders will get out of that conversation. I'm just not coming. Now, in that kind of case, that's obviously the worst situation. It's the one that indicates a heart that is rebellious toward God, a heart that in fact lifts high the banner of one's own personal choices or preferences and does not wish to submit in any way to either the elders or to God. And clearly, disobedience in that way is the one that will cause the greatest grief to the elders and no doubt the greatest grief to the congregation as a whole. 
So I've asked you to notice, surely in the first two cases, the elders likely, by way of instruction and teaching, will have little trouble helping that person to overcome the circumstances that they, that they then have chosen to be in. But as far as that third case, it likely is going to take very strong and very deliberate action in one way or the other. Now, what that action will be, we'll shortly detail, or at least try our best. I hope we each can at least ponder this. We've each perhaps been in situations in life. Maybe it's at the work site when, as a manager, those that are supposed to submit to you just rebelliously agree, I'm not going to do it. Well, clearly, that places the manager, it places the person in authority in a, in a very challenging position. Obviously, with the right authority, you could fire the person, at least in that regard. But we're talking about the church here. It's not our prerogative to, quote, fire anybody. What is in our prerogative is to carry out that which God has authorized us to do. So could I suggest then when it comes to that latter part on that slide, no doubt the elders in that situation would wish to use all of the resources available to them. Write letters, send them emails, phone calls, visits, everything to try and help them see that their rebellious attitude is not only destructive to their soul, but is very destructive to the overall well-being of the church. And so... As sad as that disobedience is, could I ask you at least to ponder one of the words found in 1 Corinthians 5? If you'd like to be turning to that, I thought that you and I would take just a moment and cast a bit of a spotlight on it. You probably remember that 1 Corinthians 5 is a description of the process of withdrawing fellowship. That is to say, that particular command delivered to a congregation to separate from those who are choosing to live in open, rebellious sin. Now, it happened to be fornication in that case. But did you notice as the chapter goes on, that's not the only sin listed. I'd like to merely read one of the verses out of that chapter. Look with me at verse number 11. So as often as you and I think about the command to withdraw fellowship from the person who again is, is living in open sexual sin, Paul goes on to say, But now I have written unto you not to keep company. So you also disfellowship or withdraw your fellowship from ones like this. If any man that is called a brother, so a person who's a member of the congregation, but is a fornicator, that again is the one we think of perhaps first, but it mentions covetous. So here's a person who, in fact, hadn't committed sexual sin, but has chosen, and there's ample evidence to highlight the fact he or she is living as a covetous person. They love money more than they love God. They love things or possessions more than they love God. Paul said, you've got to withdraw fellowship from that person. Let's read on. Or an idolater. So that person who has given his or her attention to something or someone else above God, whatever it is, you've got to withdraw fellowship from that person. Then he mentions a railer. Now you might wonder, what is a railer? What is this person that occupies the role of a reviler? I've asked you to notice at the top. 
on that slide that this word reviler literally means a contentious person. They aren't satisfied with submitting to what they should. They want to stir up trouble. They want to cause difficulties. Would that not be the same kind of rebellious attitude that would be indicative of that person who has simply said, look, I'm not coming and I don't want to hear any more about it. If that's not an example of it, I don't know what else it would be. In other words, here's a case where Paul says, here's a listing of the kinds of attitudes and the actions that would go with it that would warrant an eldership giving attention to the process of withdrawing fellowship. With that said, the person has asked the fourth and final question. And I've saved it until this time to put it in the order that the person did. Would it be appropriate, in fact, would it be a thing the elder should do to withdraw fellowship from the kind of person that will not attend the services, though they could? The person just asked the question. We seemingly have seen the evidence in 1 Corinthians 5.11 that that would not be outside the bounds of what an eldership would, within their right, be able to consider. We can't just withdraw unless God gives us the order, the example of doing it. And He has told us here in this chapter a host of things that would all be acceptable reasons to seriously consider it. Remember, withdrawing fellowship is not to punish the person by itself. It's because they're lost. You don't withdraw from somebody who is saved. That makes no sense. You withdraw from somebody who once was a faithful Christian and now they're not, and they're living in a way in which they're not going to go to heaven like this. And it's the last resort. In Matthew chapter 15, as you and I already remember, we remember that you go one-on-one, -on -one, the elders have done that. You perhaps take a witness or two with you. Once that's done, you bring it before the church with the hope that this person might be drawn to his or her senses. But if none of that works, there's one last resort. You withdraw fellowship from them. You remove from them the blessing of the social activities that the church offers. That, that nice and wonderful association that is to be severed. And when it is, hopefully, they'll realize what they've lost. They'll realize where they currently stand. And they'll realize how desperately they need to come back to faithfulness and they'll do that which would be needful. Repenting of this error, including missing assemblies like this, but more carefully of this attitude of rebellion, this attitude of willful disobedience, and rush back to the side of God. I might mention that Paul gave the order here. Did it work? So that man living in fornication, when that congregation withdrew fellowship from him, would you please turn over to 2 Corinthians 2 and let's see what happened. Thankfully, it's a fairly short reading, but how blessed it is. Our question is, did the, did the disfellowship process, did the withdrawing of fellowship work? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, it reads as follows, Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, Notice, they withdrew from him. The many did not enjoy, did not share fellowship with him. The punishment, in fact, as it was carried out, verse 7 now says this, 
so that contrary wise ye ought rather to forgive him. He repented. He changed his mind about this. He didn't live in fornication anymore. But you'll notice some in the congregation perhaps were still holding a grudge against him. Paul says you can't do that either. He has repented of that error. He stands in right standing with God now. And so in verse 7, "...ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow." It's a blessed thing to see that disfellowshipping worked in that occasion. And it can still work today too. Our desire, as always, in the person who asked this question, ask a number of thoughts to challenge us with thinking about the blessedness of the assemblies, how God looks upon them, and how you and I would in fact desire to look upon them as well. Those were the four questions of the day today. We'll close our lesson like this. This slide of conclusion is a very simple one. It's always our desire to merely discern what the Word of God teaches on these points and to implement them in our life. Because after all, God's going to be our judge. I won't be your judge and you won't be mine. Jesus said it like this in John 12, 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And so, that judgment that will take place will not only include the particular matters of life, it will also include the assemblies. Was I faithful in encouraging and supporting them? Was I faithful in my attendance of them? The day that I was baptized, I made the confession, I believe with all my heart Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that placed Him at the zenith, the pinnacle of my life. He's Lord and Master. And now if I have willfully chosen to not do what He says, to not be present at the assemblies that honor and adore Him, then I will have to give an answer, an accounting, if you please, for my disobedience. As we close this lesson today, I trust that each of us have been reminded of what the Word of God has to say on the topic such as this one. The person who asked the question challenged us to be sure. And I hope that in our study of the Word of God we've been encouraged and maybe it has allowed us to even look more forward to 5.30 tonight and to 7 o'clock Wednesday evening. Because those are times when our soul is refreshed, our spirit is revived. Our being is stronger connected to God as a result of those meetings. To willfully absent myself from them when I could be here is a statement that I apparently don't value those things very highly. Today, those who, and each of us certainly should do this, but examine ourselves whether we're in the faith. If you have found yourself in a position, even at this moment, of where you haven't attended all the services you could, Why don't you clear your conscience of that sin by getting it forgiven? Nobody here can forgive you, but God can. Because you've sinned against Him, not us, by by yourself. You have discouraged us by not being here. You have, in fact, set a poor example for others by not being here. And we want to see you correct that. Because we look forward, every one of us, surely, to being in heaven one day. This very time, Brother Larry's chosen a song of encouragement. If we could be of assistance in some way to you today, we encourage you to come. We invite you to come. We implore you to do it. While together we stand and while we sing.